Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, we continue our coverage of the COVID-19 crisis, and we're very happy to welcome Professor Jacob Shapiro uh, into our remote studio here. He is a professor of politics and international affairs at the Woodrow Wilson School uh, at, at Princeton University, and he co-directs the Empirical Studies of Conflict Project. Uh, he studies political violence, economic and political development in conflict zones and security policies, uh, and is the author of many very important uh, contributions to the field. So thank you so much for joining me remotely, Professor Shapiro. My pleasure to be here, Tiger. Uh, I know you recently uh, wrote this uh, op-ed uh, titled Don't Forget About Kids, um, sort of reminding people not to uh, forget about uh, disadvantaged groups and certain minorities and, and children uh, in, in this crisis. Why don't we just start from there and then maybe hear a little bit more of your thoughts on the, on the crisis in general, and then we can dive into uh, some of the more specifics of your research. How does that sound? That sounds great. Uh, so, so would you mind just walking us through uh, your op-ed, what, what you wrote there, and, and what do you think it's so important for people to, to learn from that? Yeah, I think the point of the op-ed and where it came from was uh, frustration early on in the days of the pandemic when it was very clear that the social distancing policies and closures of school, which were happening, were going to have wildly disparate impacts. You know, like for my kids who have nice places in the house to study and parents who are attentive to their education and awesome broadband internet and more devices than like we can stand them playing with, like they're on the devices all the time, um, it's going to be just fine. Like they'll miss their friends a little bit and yeah, that sucks, but their education is not going to be set back. But for the kids who don't have the devices at home or the parents who can help them study or the parents whose jobs let them work from home or the nice place to work, this is going to be a massive educational setback. And for the kids from at-risk homes who have difficult home situations, maybe uh, there's someone who's abusive in the home, or the home is unstable in other ways, they're going to lose the safe space that they had at school that gave them an opportunity to thrive. And many of those people are going to be set on a path during this pandemic from which they'll never recover. And early in the crisis, that was not being talked about, and it was not front and center in the relief efforts. No one was asking the question, okay, for all the kids who are on national school lunch programs, when we shut the schools, what are we going to do with them? What's the federal government going to do to allow states and counties flexibility in spending those funds to get the nutrition out to the kids who depend on the schools for it? There's just like this like absence of attention to those differential impacts. And uh, so our former PhD student, now professor at Chicago, uh, Austin Wright, and I uh, felt this was particularly important. And I think, you know, for Austin, it was really personal because he came from one of those homes. And he could relate directly to what it would have meant for him when he was in high school or middle school to have been taken out of the school, the place he was thriving for months at a time. Uh, and this, some of the solutions you propose, uh, including providing devices to, to, to children in, in a uh, widely distributed sort of uh, electronic tablets or, or such so that kids can actually have access to technology. Uh, but what if they have trouble accessing this different kinds of technology because of home internet connections or that uh, the tablets can't get to their home. So, so I think in New York and uh, Philadelphia, yeah, they're so, being brought up. I, I mean, so, so these are issues, but they're, they're, they're entirely soluble. So for, for everyone who's on national school lunch program or almost everyone, um, 
the local school district has their home address and contact information. And internet service providers could be subsidized to go to all of those homes and deploy broadband internet. Like, that's not hard. We know where they live, like, by definition. And, you know, pollsters and survey companies all the time, when they want to get representative samples of the United States, go out and provide people with internet access. So why aren't we doing that now? And as far as devices, you know, there are surely some supply chain issues involved. But for schools that have devices in the school, the issue is insurance. If I send that device home and something happens to it, how am I made whole? And that's the kind of like behind the scenes thing that matters a lot in policy. But again, we're not seeing, for example, in the bills, subsidies for insurance to school districts so that they can send the devices home. So there are some arguments saying that uh, schools should not pursue online education unless all students have access to it, uh, or, or else it wouldn't be fair to the poorer students who don't have access to, to those education. Do you think that we should, if it's not possible or we're realistic to make it equitable for everybody, uh, maybe to suspend education for a bit? Or I think that's like total nonsense. I think in the sense that... It's a straw man problem. Yeah, it's a, it's a straw man problem in, in two senses. One is it's not going to happen. So, you know, um, that, that that's one thing. But the other thing is the answer is not let's stop educating everyone. The answer is let's figure out how to help the people who are relatively disadvantaged. You know, we don't say in medicine, because everyone can't get high-end like medical services that we should give no one medical services. We say we should expand health insurance. We should train better doctors. We should enhance the use of nurse practitioners so that more people are able to access high quality primary care. We don't say like, so I don't know why we would say that in the case of education. I think the more important question is how can we get creative and how can we subsidize the ability of localities to get creative in making sure those who are being left behind are, are, are like minimally harmed. And more importantly, when school comes back in session, how do we direct resources to those who are relatively disadvantaged? Because look, when school comes back, like my kids aren't going to need help. They're going to be just fine. But there are a lot of kids who are going to need to get caught up. And so we need to be thinking about subsidizing summer programs. We need to be thinking about special after school programs. We need to be thinking now about how do we deploy the mental health resources that were in schools to help those children. And you know, some school districts are totally on top of this, and others are completely failing. Um, but you know what we're hearing from, like, the Department of Education on this, as far as I can tell, is like crickets. And that's a tragedy, and it's awful, and, and something should be done about it. And so, you know, we tried to make that argument early on, and you are starting to see a little bit more attention to it, but it, it's late. It's a month into people being out of school. Yeah, and we're very close to the semester being finished. Or so, so this semester has pretty much just been a write-off for for many kids. Absolutely. And uh, so, besides uh, maybe subsidizing broadband internet services companies to go to those homes and and, and provide tablets and, and such, uh, any other policies that come into mind to to further ensure safe spaces? Because I suppose for a lot of those those kids, staying at home could mean you know. Uh, chances of having domestic violence going up and 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 yeah you're you're already seeing lots of um anecdotal evidence that there's there are big increases in domestic violence going on um 
and for sure you're going to see increases in all the all the ills that happen in some homes which children are able to escape during the school day they're going to be exposed to and moreover um the parents who are already stressed and in difficult situations and imposing costs on their children as a result are going to be more stressed in more difficult situations and therefore um, going to be imposing more harm on their kids. Um, as far as what to do about it, you know, look, like I'm not an education specialist, um, so I don't know what the right answer is. Um, I suspect uh, we have already missed the boat on the imposition of a lot of that harm. And so a lot of the effort is going to have to be coming out of this, uh, really focusing resources on those who are most harmed. And, um, you know, that's something that we should be planning for now. We should be thinking about that, what, what that means for school staffing, for mental health requirements, for targeting criteria for access to different services. There are all kinds of things which are kind of in scarce supply that are not currently means tested that maybe should be means tested going forward, at least for a period of time after the pandemic passes. Well, let's talk about the time after pandemic passes, because you've written how uh, coronavirus is really accelerating educational inequality, which, has, yep. which is, has been one of those societal underlying problems in America that, that is not suddenly appearing in you know, the coronavirus time. So it's just being exposed that there are real problems deep down. So Going forward, do you expect this issue to, to raise more awareness around people or, or uh, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? And also, do, do you see there are realistic policy solutions going forward that can help bring those kids back up on track again? Um, because because there lot, there's a lot of talk saying, you know, going forward, this digitization trend might continue. You know, big state universities would say, oh, why, why don't we just have more online classes? Why don't, just, why don't we just put kids at home more? <laughs> Uh, and have less in-person education? Um, um, you know, I, I think it's hard for me to predict where that will go. Um, you know, my, my hope is that this will be a period that creates a greater sense of solidarity and um, uh, a sense of shared responsibility in community. And I think you're seeing that in some places. Um, I suspect... Um, the response will depend a lot on how serious uh, the coronavirus is in different places. Like I would expect in New York State, where a lot of communities have been hit really hard and realized the importance of community response as a result, that you'll see more moves uh, relative to states that have not been hit as hard. And hopefully those states will remain not being uh, hit as hard. And so I think you'll see a lot of heterogeneity across the country and how people respond coming out of this. Um, you know, one of the challenges is going to be for the universities, if the, um, for many universities, the flow of foreign students is a key funding source. And so something that is worrisome at the, at the college level, at least, is that a lot of places are going to have less revenue for a number of years going forward until the flow of foreign students comes back up and people start coming. And the relative attractiveness of the United States as a destination for foreign students will have been harmed by the poor quality of our response to COVID. And so you're going to have lots of universities with less revenue and less of those high profitability students, which they can use to subsidize the other students. And so I think the services to, to people from underprivileged backgrounds um, and difficult homes and whatnot are going to be scarcer coming out of this than they were going in. 
Uh, one thing that is trending in the past couple of days is how Harvard received the $9 million of uh, federal funding mm-hmm. as the aid package. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, uh, <laughs> um, whether that's kind of showing how uh, the rich gets richer or, or institutions that already have more established resources can can are also receiving more, whereas the, 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 the ones that are disadvantaged are often kind of forgotten in, in crises moments. Uh, I think worrying about the $9 million that might go to Harvard right now is a really silly thing for people to be spending time on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But seriously, I mean, when we have, we have, um, we have uh, right now almost uh, 15% of the Americans who are working at the start of March have filed for unemployment. Like, I don't fucking give a shit about $9 million going to Harvard right now. Like, I want to know what are we going to do to make it easy for those people to get back into their jobs when the economy opens up? Absolutely. I want to know how are we going to, like, what are we doing to use uh, DPA and other federal government authorities? Um, What are we doing to plus up the manpower at SBA so that they can get the money out the door fast and minimize fraud? Like those are the things I'm worried about. Not like, did some rich institution like follow the rules and get money that by a law passed by Congress they're entitled to? Right, right. Well, I actually just read this uh, article op-ed in, in the Spectator uh-huh. magazine this morning. It's written by Liano Shriver, and um, she wrote this thing about how a friend wrote to her saying, "Quote unquote, uh, I'm starting to root for a plague or world war to purify Western culture, burning to cinders all the petty, neurotic, witch-hunting cliques uh, with the white heat of real problems." So, and, and she was saying, "Yeah, I, I see how you are cynical about the fake problems and, and all the how this crisis is bringing people uh, beca- bringing people together because of real problems." But after the crisis, you'll have actual real problems to deal with. It's not like. Um, having real problems is more preferred to having fake problems. Um, but so, so I think, I think that kind of resonates with what you were saying is that there are true issues that we need to pay attention to right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, hopefully this will also reinforce, uh, for people, the importance of competence yeah. in, in, in government. You know, there's been a long run trend towards, um, you know, denigrating the value of expertise and experience and moving away from thinking about the, like the nuts and bolts of making institutions work in favor of kind of superficial political issues. And hopefully this will move people back in the other direction because we're seeing, you know, the consequences of um, not staffing federal government organizations. We're seeing the consequences of uh, hollowing out of expertise. That's all like smacking people in the face and, um, you know, frankly, like killing people who had many years of productive life ahead of them. Um, and so hopefully that'll change some attitudes in the long run. I, I think people are realizing that uh, the fact that we are where we are right now is kind of the result of a month of um, underpreparedness uh, and, and underlying issues being exposed, but both in terms of, as you mentioned, you know, retracting funding from 
important public institutions like the CDC or whether the healthcare system wasn't prepared at all or whether there was no coherent communication strategies from the federal government in terms of corresponding, uh, coordinating this kind of uh, coordinated efforts. Absolutely. Well, I think it's I think it's wrong to think of it as the consequences of a month of inaction. It's the consequences of um, years of failure to plan and maintain systems and um, stockpile resources, and you know the, the failures of the current administration are legion. Um, the prior administration also uh, failed in important respects in 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 replenishing some of the uh, stockpiles that were drawn down uh, with the avian flu epidemic in um, uh, failing to kind of update and maintain um, and adequately fund kind of uh, some basic research needs. And, you know, look, like you can, you, can lay, you can layer those blames across Washington. And certainly the blame for the last few years rests with the people who've been in charge the last few years, like no doubt. Um, but, you know, I think at this, at this point going forward, the important thing to think about is like what – what should be done differently? And, you know, the arguments about past performance are germane for how people are going to vote in a few months. Um, but I think when, when we're thinking about, you know, what would we like to see done in the future? Like, we are where we are, and we should focus on that. Um, you know, for, for, from my perspective, things, you know, you need to think about doing um, in, in the future are... Um, you know, particularly around the kind of helping the people out who've been differentially harmed, is starting to get people working now um, who are currently out of work on supporting whatever that response is going to be. And so, you know, for example, if you have school districts that are furloughing teachers, put them to work developing, you know, two-track lesson plans. Think about developing more tracks so that you have the track that will get the people who've fallen like half a grade level behind back on pace. Think about developing innovations like Germany did in the 1960s when it had to realign its school calendar between different parts of the country. They actually put parts of the country on a different calendar for several years to get them caught up. There are all kinds of innovations like that that we could be thinking about, the development of which would ensure that the education sector stays vibrant and active while they're stuck at home. And I don't know how much of that is going on. Uh, so, I mean, I know your uh, most of your research focuses on international relations mm-hmm. and conflicts, and not totally. domestic politics. So, what about on 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 that regard? I, I know you recently started uh, this project titled "COVID nineteen Disinformation Data," where you uh, work with Microsoft Research and began cataloging misinformation efforts around the, the, the pandemic. And um, so I would love to hear your thoughts on basically. Uh, what other work you're doing in relations to to data, to conflicts, to international relations around the, around the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple things I think to think about in international relations. the The first is um, let's not um, lose sight of uh, the tragedy with respect to the next ten, fifteen years of American influence in the world that our response has created. You know, if you step back to March 1 and imagine a world in which uh, the president had invoked DPA to use the United States, the world's largest economy, to produce PPE for the world, 
and to lead the world in the production of uh, of um, drugs that would be relevant to it, to COVID, and to think about a massive program to identify potential supply chain shortfalls as different countries uh, fell off the production process due to COVID-related movement restrictions and begin uh, targeting our industry to address those things and step in and try and help the rest of the world as opposed to dropping funding for WHO and shutting borders, like ostentatiously shutting borders. Like if you're going to shut the borders, like shut the borders, but don't make a big deal about it. Um, that's a completely different world in five years than the one we're moving to. And so there's a real like big picture geopolitical tragedy in terms of uh, the influence of democracies in the world that my children will grow up in that's unfolding right now that I don't want to lose sight of. Um, but uh, that's, that's all also kind of speculative. So on the COVID-19 um, misinformation, the really interesting thing that, that I think happened there is in mid-March, um, we had been uh, doing work on disinformation uh, campaigns around political influence uh, for about 18 months, uh, basically trying to catalog what were the campaigns going on all around the world and build out some technologies that would help towards tracking and understanding uh, them and giving people like some sense of the volume of effort behind different campaigns. And in, uh, in the course of that, we engaged a whole group of undergraduates at Princeton and other universities around basically coding information on those misinformation campaigns. So in, in mid-March, um, uh, our colleagues at Microsoft uh, Research, who had been funding some of that work, um, basically reached out and said, hey, we're starting to work on COVID-related disinformation. Um, are there things that, uh, you know, kind of um, you think we should be thinking about and working on? And got with, uh, with my team, with Jan Oladan, who is one of our, um, our research associates, and basically said, like, what, should, what do you think we should do? And we decided uh, very quickly to start trying to track the narratives that were out there. And it, we felt like it was important just early on to start kind of building out a sense of, like, what were the stories that people were telling? And we didn't, when we started, have like a really clear use case for it. We just thought it would be useful and we didn't see anyone doing it. And we also wanted to start pulling together a list of resources that people could use if they wanted to do research on the process. And um, you know, it was partly a way to just like do something useful as as the pandemic was unfolding, and partly a way to think about how can we give the students something to do, which will give them a sense of agency over this and an opportunity to contribute to the response when they're not at a stage in their professional lives where they can, you know, go out and do extra shifts at the hospital or, you know, target research towards the problem. So that was the start. Um, very quickly, it became clear that there was a wide variety of misinformation out there around the pandemic. Um, uh, there were good reasons based on past social science research to be concerned that it could screw up the public health response. Um, but the first step in understanding that was giving people some seed of just like, what are the range of narratives? And so that's, that's what we set out to create. It is not uh, a count of volume in the sense that you can't say from it, you know, there's more of this kind of misinformation than that. What you can say is there are more stories of this type circulating than stories of that type. And it can be that like one story is very prominent, you know, just like there are way more ants in the world than there are like 
rhinos. Um, and so we're kind of like, it's almost like we're like, we're counting species of narratives as opposed to like the number, the population of those different species. And there, there are tons of other projects that are going after different pieces of the misinformation uh, process. So uh, there's a group at Carnegie Mellon that's trying very hard to count the activity on social media. Um, uh, there is a group at uh, debunk.eu uh, in Lithuania that's trying very hard to get a systematic count of basically fake news stories as opposed to narratives like the fake news story is their unit of analysis. Uh, there are fact-checking organizations that have either pivoted to COVID disinformation or sprung up to work on it in more than a dozen countries around the world. So there, there are a lot of people trying to do this work, this kind of work. Um, the next stage is for people to start to uh, build tools and do things with it. Would you mind just telling us a little bit more about the range of information that uh, misinformation that you are seeing? How yeah, is it absolutely? Kind of so, so there's there's all kinds of stuff out there. So the way we've approached this is we've tried to say, uh, what's the type of narrative? So is it about the origin of the virus? Is it saying that it's a, a weapon or designed organism that got out of the lab? Is it just trying to stoke fear? Is it trying to sell product? So what's the what's the type of narrative? Uh, who's pushing it? So is this being distributed by an individual, uh, a company, uh, a state actor, uh, or can we just, is there just no information on that? And then as best we can discern from context, what's the motive? All right, so is, and we break that down into things like, are you trying to make a profit? Are you trying to stoke fear? Are you trying to lay the groundwork for later uh, political claims? And you know, there, there are a couple of interesting patterns that emerge. To me, the most interesting one is that so far, we've seen very little in terms of stories that are clearly coming from state actors that are trying to mess with the public health response. The stuff that's coming to, from state actors, at least that we've seen so far, really seems to be about um, laying the groundwork for how we're going to talk about this afterwards and who's going to take the blame. And this is a a thing that uh, certain states have done with pandemics um, before in history. So with the AIDS um, epidemic, uh, Russia had a project called Project uh, Operation Infection, which actually uh, placed fake scientific papers that had information attributing HIV AIDS to a CIA bioweapons program. And those, the rumors that those kicked off are still circulating in parts of the world and still being used in parts of the world to justify, uh, for example, not using condoms uh, to protect against HIV AIDS. So um, there's historical precedent for this kind of thing. Uh, in that case, there, you know, the evidence is like kind of so-so that there were long-run public health responses, uh, problems from that. Um, what seems to be kind of a predominant narrative now is um, the attribution of um, the pandemic to particular nation states. And so you see this um, in kind of early efforts uh, by people in the U.S. to pin uh, the pandemic on um, uh, a uh, basically uh, labs in China. And you see this in Chinese, Russian, and Iranian efforts to pin it on uh, the United States or NATO, or to say that NATO soldiers were spreading it in Eastern Europe. Um, and you know, when, when we look at this stuff, we try to make a distinction between the carefully reported piece which says here is the weight of the evidence for or against the thesis that this 
came from a research facility uh, in China or for or against this is a designed organism from the evidence that just says like, yes, this is clearly X, Y, or Z, when that's nowhere present in the scientific literature. So it seems that most of the narrative focuses on, as you said, laying the groundwork for, for later discussions in terms of how public that's will, right. will perceive it. it. Well, the, the things that are coming from state-sponsored actors, for sure. Uh, so what about just random other misinformation that I guess people might tweet out or think were misconceptions? Do you classify those as, as quote-unquote misinformation at all the, in terms of the degree of severity? Because uh, a lot of people would say, ah, oh, don't worry about wearing masks, which, which is a, a much less severe degree of misinformation, I would imagine, compared to the, the virus comes from China. Well, it's, I don't know about severity. I mean, I'm, I'm frankly like much more worried about people um, not wearing masks when they go out in public um, than I am about the long run kind of political consequences of, of uh, people saying, oh, yeah, it's a Chinese, you know, it was it was poor lab procedures in China that led to it or, or U.S. bioweapon because like you have kind of a long time frame to deal with those things. Um, the kind of immediate public health response things are, those are like worrisome now. Um, and they're partly worrisome now um, because uh, of the people who are going to be most harmed by this. Like, you know, another week or two in quarantine for you and me, Tiger, like does not matter. Doesn't much. matter at all. And we can discern the misinformation quite well, whereas an average citizen or, or other people, when they go on Twitter, they might suffer more from it. Well, I think the the my understanding, at least, of the epidemiology uh, of the disease, as far as we understand it so far, is that it wouldn't take a lot of non-compliers with things like uh, wearing masks to create uh, a fair amount of risk. And, you know, so, so you worry about that. If we, if we look though, you know, if we look at kind of the distribution of, um, uh, you know, misinformation across uh, different narratives, um, um, you know, the, the, um, you know, the two biggest categories uh, that we're seeing so far are stories about false cures or preventive measures. And then uh, fake stories about the emergency response. And one thing that's interesting is the 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 number of narratives we're seeing in the last couple weeks around false cures and preventive measures has dropped compared to what we're seeing around the the nature of the emergency response. And so that's that's quite interesting. And a lot of the emergency response stuff is people kind of picking up content uh, from you know WHO or CDC and uh, tweaking it and messing with it. And we don't really know yet like what the motivation for that is. Is it just kind of trolling for entertainment purposes, people just trying to screw things up because it's fun for them? Or is it people trying to help out because they have like an honest belief? Uh, or is it something else? And so we're exploring ways that we can kind of get at that um, by in collaboration with some other institutions um, but uh, that takes time because it's a complicated social science problem. So how do you distinguish between uh, fake news and people who genuinely try to make an effort in, in helping with the problem? Because uh, I, I remember one of my friends told me that early in the, in, in the pandemic, uh, when CDC wasn't caring about the issue as, as, as much as it is right now, 
there were disparate groups across the country that kind of you know came up and said, oh, we're doing some form of, of testing amongst ourselves, or uh, we're kind of trying to help out, and this is what we should actually treat the pandemic to be like. But these could easily kind of be seen as uh, you know non-publicly credited uh, sort of in, non-credible sources of information. So. How, how do you in your research distinguish between the intentions? Um, so, uh, so we try to, you know, we try to use context as much as we can. And we don't, you know, we, I don't view this as something where anyone's going to be right on every piece of information. I think the question you want to ask is, you know, um, uh, if you think about averaging over a number of stories, are you kind of generally getting it right? And does everyone kind of generally agree? And that's, that's, that's the target we're going for. I think the deeper question is, um, you know, why are people uh, sharing and passing fake news? So, for example, for the news media, they're sharing it and passing it because they think it's newsworthy. Right? They think that you as a consumer will be interested to learn that this particular story is fake and they have a belief, which is potentially misplaced. There's some research showing it's misplaced that you will read that information as debunking and not as them promoting as true the fact, which is fake in the thing they're reporting on. So, you know, that's kind of like the, the motivation for the media for individuals. Um, a lot of it is they're trying to be helpful. You know, so I remember early on, um, my wife got a text message from someone who was like pretty well connected saying um, basically, hey, we heard that there's going to be a nationwide uh, quarantine enacted in a couple of days. And so like people might want to stock up. Now, that turns out to have been a distributed piece of fake news that this well-connected person has seen, thought was real, and then passed on through text messages to like their friends. And that wasn't like malicious intent. That was they were trying to be helpful. And so um, what we don't understand is when people share these stories, how many people are sharing them because they you know, want to be helpful? And how many are sharing them because like, gosh, isn't it fun to screw with people? And like, I wonder how many of my like people I'm talking to are going to be such gullible folk that they would like find this true. And, you know, that's entertaining and interesting for some people. Um, now, what, what we don't understand yet, and I think what's very important to understand is how do those behaviors change as the severity of the situation becomes obvious? So my suspicion is that people in New York City right now are very careful about what they share and try to be like very fact-based as much as they can, where people in parts of the world where the virus hasn't hit yet probably feel freer to just like pass things on. That, that is why... Uh, it goes back to the three very important questions that you talked about. First of all, is what's the type of the narrative? The second is who is actually perpetrating it, and third of it is is what's the actual motive behind it. Uh, so, so I would love to just quickly go back to the two big categories of fake news that you talked about. One is about the false cures. The other is about the emergency response. Uh, and and you said the the fake news about false cures have gone down in in the past couple of weeks. So we are seeing well. So. I want to be careful. We have no idea from the work we've done about the volume. The number of new narratives that we're seeing about false cures and preventives has gone down. 
and the number that we're seeing about the emergency response has gone up. So um, it looks like the like the stories people are telling, the distribution of stories is shifting away from uh, misinformation about what to do regarding the virus and moving towards like what are the public health measures that are being put in place. So do you speculate that all kinds of misinformation all somewhat are related or started by some kind of nation state actor or at least um, some kind of organization that has intention because I suppose individuals who might just want to troll around a little bit might have a hard time consistently pushing through a complex set of narratives that get people to buy in, right? Or I don't know. I mean, I think we just, you know, we just don't, we don't really know. And what, you know, we, we would like to have the ability to trace back some of these narratives and there's some innovations going on in different technology spaces that might let us start to do that in a systematic way. Um, so I'm very hopeful about being able to do that and then understand, you know, to your point, are how many of these things originate with state actors? How many of them originate with a well-intentioned story that then gets picked up on by others and promoted long after it's been found to be incorrect? You know, like one of my favorite examples of... Um, you know, of uh, fake news was this uh, this uh, story in a prominent U.S. newspaper with high standards that was very well reported, and just it happened that the sources they went to, who were appropriate sources for the question, were wrong about something, and so they wrote a story which was misinformation. They weren't trying to lie; they wrote a story based on talking to people who were incorrect. And within two or three days after that story, it was clear it was incorrect. But then if that story then gets picked up by others, kind of continues to live on. And um, what we don't know yet is at any given point in time of like the set of stories that are out there, which seem fake, how many are like the continuation of that kind of thing versus someone intentionally saying, here's the narrative I want to construct. Let me play some stories to tell that story. So let's say the government is now aware of the importance of of dealing with fake news mm -hmm. and, and, and where Twitter and Facebook are realizing how their platform have become a host of, you know, massive spread of, of fake news in, in this era that could actually mm -hmm. cause um, massive loss of li livelihoods. What can they actually do? Do you think the government should step in with a policy response and say, uh, Twitter and, and Facebook are, you're by law compelled to remove fake news from your platforms or how can those platforms distinguish uh, which ones to take down and, and such? Well, so, you know, there are a couple, there are a lot of things platforms can do. Um, once a story is known, uh, you know, there are lots of ways to think about um, using a combination of machine and human intelligence to go out there and find other examples of it. And, um, you know, certainly they're working hard at this. Um, you know, we have one good piece of evidence from about uh, three weeks ago now by the Oxford Internet Institute, which suggested that they were catching a fair amount of it, but the amount varied across platform. So they basically took a list of fake stories, and then they went out to see how many of those they could find on different platforms. And they, you know, and so 
um, you know, and, and the, the, the amounts ranged between platforms. I think for my recollection is that for Twitter, it was about 50% and it was less on, uh, or maybe it was Facebook, it was 50% and it was less on Twitter and YouTube. I don't remember kind of exactly uh, which. So what was clear is, you know, they were doing things, they were removing a fair amount, uh, but they hadn't removed everything. And I suppose and, it, it is really hard to move them uh, to actually, because as you said, it's hard to distinguish between well-intentioned or, or non-well-intentioned and such. Well, so, you know, I think there's there's a period of time with a lot of things that turn out to be fake when it's not clear that it is. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and um, and there are these there are these hard gray areas. So if I told you, you know, drinking bleach will cure you, yes, that's obviously fake. If I tell you that taking hydrochloroquine will be helpful, well, I don't know. Like, you know, <laughs> that's the like the 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 evidence is is still out there. And, you know, as far as as far as I can tell from reading the things I've read, it looks like there might be a few populations for which it's helpful and a lot of populations for which it's harmful. And like, you know, you need a pretty large scale clinical trial to sort that out. Um, and that just hasn't been done. So like, I don't know how we like training an algorithm to classify that content is very hard. It's very hard. Uh, I know you have to go soon. So maybe we can quickly talk about uh, terrorism and other international affairs really quickly. Do you have any thoughts on uh, whether terrorist attacks because the, in, in light of the a pandemic will, will take other shapes or forms or will, will get delayed in the future? Uh um, you know, it's a, it's a great question. And I think, I think the way we should be thinking about this is, is two things is number one, you know, the organizations which are out there to kind of defend the physical integrity of society are designed to take um, much higher levels of loss uh, than Corona could possibly impose on them especially given the demographics of the disease. So like, you know, there's no way that, um, you know, COVID is going to significantly disrupt the ability of the intelligence community and the defense establishment to stay on top of the terrorism problem or to respond to uh, violence overseas or efforts by uh, state actors overseas. Um, you know, these are institutions that have a lot of slack built into them so that they can handle, you know, combat. Um, and so I think there we shouldn't be too worried. I think the thing which should worry us more is that, um, you know, you're going to have massive economic displacement in some parts of the world. Uh, exactly how much I think remains to be seen because I think a lot of countries are looking at this and they're saying, uh, we could not possibly do the social lockdowns that the US and Western Europe are doing or people will starve. And so as much as that might be optimal for public health right now, uh, that would be a disaster for public health in the future. So I do, I do a lot of work in, in, in Pakistan, and they are right now in the middle of uh, wheat harvesting. They're going to go into planting cotton uh, soon, um, and uh, rice is going to need to be planted soon in parts of the country. And if those activities don't happen because of social distancing, um, people will starve. And, and the potential number of loss of lives could actually be greater Will than be otherwise. Massively greater than what you would get from COVID. And so, um, you know, I think what you're going to see is as 
the pandemic kind of continues to move around the world and, and spreads to more uh, developing countries, you're going to see more places that uh, look at this and say, you know, we can take some actions to slow the spread and to try and minimize the intensity of the peak, but we cannot do the things that the West has tried. Uh, the, that's the classic debate between suppression versus mitigation strategies. That, that absolutely makes sense. Um, yeah, and I and I think you know the 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 cost benefit calculus is different in different kinds of economies and in different kinds of places, but with respect to kind of terrorism and political violence, the the concern is that the massive economic shocks that are coming because there's this huge negative demand shock in the developed world. Um, and you're going to have all kinds of reallocation of supply chains over the next few years, that's going to create a lot of disruption and political foment. I also want to quickly get your thoughts on what about bioterrorism? Because I, th I think maybe, you know, despite the, all the misinformation about the, the virus coming out of a bio lab or something, but it does seem that bioterrorism is a threat, imminent threat to, to humanity. Uh, so I just completely disagree. Really? I think the like... The infrastructure that you need to produce an engineered organism that hits just the right balance of like transmissibility and lethality and like transmissibility at the right point in the phase between like when you're symptomatic and not, like if you think a terrorist organization can maintain the research facilities required to develop such an organism without popping on every state in the world's intelligence radar, you are smoking something good. So you don't think it's, it, it, I mean, what if, what if it's not intentionally concocted, but accidentally leaking from a, a research facility? Uh, because there are examples of how even high-level security labs could leak super viruses designed by very well-intentioned scientists. And um, so do you foresee new measures to prevent? I don't know that we've ever seen a super virus designed by a well-intentioned scientist. <laughs> like during the Cold War, the U.S. and the USSR both had like massive organizations trying to devise really good bioweapons and neither one really got there. Like they, they, it's just like, it's, re, you need to hit this like absolute sweet spot in terms of the nature of the organism and then how it's dispersed and then the response to it. So I don't think anything about this changes the fact that like bioterrorism at, at like a scale that would reorder society is a very like distant threat. Okay, that, that that actually totally makes sense. I really wish that we could have had the time to go deeper into some of your thoughts and, and also talk a little bit more about diplomacy. But I think that was a wonderful interview that we focused on um, the kids and also data. So maybe at the end, I'll just ask you, you know, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, what would be your punchline for our audience today um, based on what we talked about? I think the biggest punchline is if you want to um, think about the really interesting questions for policy, they are not around the COVID response because we've set off down a particular path and that path is, is, going, to, is going to be followed more or less and that, nothing about that is going to change significantly. The places I think where hard thinking now can really make a difference is in what comes next. What do we do coming out of this to recover? What do we do coming out of this to help those who are most harmed? What do we do coming out of this to make sure that as the economies start again, uh, people in different parts of the world are really able to um, 
get back and reconstitute supply chains and rebuild the interpersonal networks that kind of underlie all economic activity. I think that's the that's the challenge is how do we do those things well? And it would be great if some of the minds of the people who are thinking and listening on this podcast were put towards addressing the what next question as opposed to what now. That is why you say rather than focusing on Harvard receiving $9 million, that there are real more yeah. urgent problems to, to focus about. Absolutely. Yeah, like how do we get you know $300 billion more dollars in SBA loans out the door? And then in four months when those loans come due, how do we make sure that the people who merit loan forgiveness because they kept their employees active get it and others don't? How do we get the kids back in school? How do we handle tracking? How do we handle college placement? Like, there's a huge host of what next questions that people could be spending time on. Absolutely. If our listener wants to read more about your work, especially on the COVID, uh, the misinformation and data, uh, what what can they? How can they find you? Uh, so, esoc.princeton.edu uh, is our website. Uh, it's it's undergoing redesign, so it will be up with a nice new proper Princeton-themed look uh, here shortly. Right now, it's pretty old school. It's about eight years old now. Um, but uh, that's one place. And I think more broadly, the thing people um, uh, should be looking at is, um, you know, the, the coverage on this, uh, honestly, in the New York Times, the data journalism around it has been very good. And so I think there's a lot of interesting tidbits there, particularly uh, around thinking about what should we be thinking about in terms of uh, what the models suggest, how the models have changed over time, and what's driving the different mortality figures. Of course. Thank you so much for joining me again, Professor Shapiro. Really appreciate all your help today. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, please visit us on policypunchline.com. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Twitter, uh, all kinds of platforms you may find us. Uh, and that was our interview with Professor Jacob Shapiro. He is uh, the politics professor in Princeton and also the director of Empirical Studies of Conflict Project. You can find more about his work at esoc.princeton.edu. Uh, very, very fascinating work to be, to be done and, and uh, ahead of us. So thanks so much for listening today. We hope to see you next episode. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.